Hey guys, Veronica, Andrew, and Nate here. We are Foodies Watching Movies, a podcast dedicated to awesome movies, great food, and that's about it. Check us out on the JIC Network at www.journeyintocomics.com. Maybe throw some money over to our Patreon so we can eat this week. And now your feature presentation. The following is a Journey into Comics Network production. From the suburbs of Chicago and Illinois, this is The Poor Report with your host, Andrew Poor. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode 37 of The Poor Report. I am your host, Andrew Poor, and I want to thank you for joining me here on this lovely, lovely day. Now, for those who've been paying attention the last few episodes, I've been taking a break from my regular formatting of covering the late breaking news and bringing you all that content to focus on a profile series. And I felt that, based on a lot of news that's come out the past week, that it is time to interrupt this little profile series and actually get to some real news that I think is worth doing this week. And I'll be back next week, barring any strange circumstances, back with profiles and I have some nice profiles for you, but I think this week definitely should be something newsworthy, and there's just a lot going on that I feel like it shouldn't just skip over just due to this profile series. So, jumping right in. For those of you who've been paying attention the past couple months, Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, has been in the news a lot with everything that's going on with the Stormy Daniels and with uh, Sean Hannity and just his involvement and this and that. And now it set, now it came out this whole thing that AT&T actually hired Michael Cohen for some political legal advice. And now the AT&T chief has come out and said it's, it was a big mistake hiring Cohen. So Randall L. Stevenson, AT&T's chief executive, said on Friday that the company had made a big mistake by hiring President Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen provide advice on federal policy, including how the government might approach the telecommunications giant deal to buy Time Warner. Mr. Stevenson also said the company's head of lobbying and external affairs, Bob Quinn, would be leaving the company. Our company has been in the headlines for all the wrong reasons these last few days, and our reputation has been damaged. Mr. Stevenson wrote in a memo to employees, There's no other way to say it. AT&T hiring Michael Cohen as a political consultant was a big mistake. Mr. Stevenson noted following the revelation the week the company had paid Mr. Cohen $600,000 to advise on the $85.4 billion merger with Time Warner and other regulatory matters. Federal prosecutors are investigating Mr. Cohen's business dealings, including a $130,000 payment he made to the adult film actress Stephanie Clifford, known professionally as Stormy Daniels, to buy her silence about an affair she says she had with Mr. Trump. The president has denied Ms. Clifford's claims. The payment to Ms. Clifford was the first known activity involving Essential Consultants, a company started by Mr. Cohen. It was through Essential Consultants that AT&T retained Mr. Cohen, several other businesses including the Swiss drug maker Novartis, and an American company linked to a Russian oligarch also sent payments to Mr. Cohen's company. The Russian Viktor Vekelsberg was stopped in question at an airport this year by investigators for Robert S. Mueller III, or Mueller, I guess is actually how you pronounce it, the special counsel examining Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Although AT&T statements were meant to distance itself from Mr. Cohen and the arrangement on Friday, they also provide insight into 
how companies like AT&T operate in Washington during the Trump era. Mr. Trump pledged during his campaign to shake up the Washington establishment to drain the swamp while railing against the special interests, the lobbyists, and the corrupt corporate media that have rigged the system against everyday Americans. You also announced policies intended to clamp down on the revolving door between government and K Street, which is home to many of the capital, capital's lobbying firms. But the anti-lobbying rhetoric and policies do not discourage some former Trump aides from seeking big paydays from the influence industry, where few of the established players had close connections to Mr. Trump or his inner circle. Some Trump insiders, including Mr. Corn and Corey Lewandowski, a former Trump campaign manager, positioned themselves as strategic, strategic advisors because they were offered insight or political intelligence on Mr. Trump and his team and not overtly lobbying. They did not need to disclose their role with Congress and possibly the Justice Department. AT&T fanned out to try and keep pace in this cl changing climate, although the company had long retained a platoon of lobbyists with deep connections on both sides of the aisle. None of the firms they worked with were as close to Mr. Trump as Mr. Cohen. The company said Mr. Cohen had approached it about being a consultant and that he was among several consultants the company hired as Mr. Trump was assuming the presidency. AT&T officials would not disclose the names of the other people and firms hired, but according to a person with ties to Mr. Trump's campaign, AT&T approached Trump, uh, other Trump associates about possibly retaining them as government affairs consultants or lobbyists. The person would speak only under the condition of anonymity because their talks were private. Among Trump associates pitching AT&T was Mr. Lewandowski. AT&T said it was approached early in January 2017 by Avenue Strategies, a lobbying firm that Mr. Lewandowski helped found. AT&T said it did not pursue a contract with the firm, which Mr. Lewandowski left in the middle of 2017. AT&T paid a total of $4.1 million in lobbying fees to nearly 30 firms through their first three months of this year, according to congressional lobbying filings. But none of these businesses, including top-tier law firms like Mayor Brown and Akin Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld, have lobbyists who are as close to Mr. Trump as Mr. Cohen. The filing showed the largest fees paid to those firms were around $35,000 a month, significantly less than a fifth, the $50,000 a month that the company paid Mr. Cohen. It's possible that the firms were paid other fees by AT&T that were not expressly for lobbying and therefore were not disclosed. Mr. Cohen had a similar arrangement with the giant drug maker Novartis, the multinational company paid Essential Consultants $1.2 million for a year-long contract to provide insights on the new administration's approach to health care policy. Novartis said its former chief executive, Joe uh, Jimenez, hired Essential Consultants like Mr. Stevenson, Novartis' current chief executive, Vasant Narasimhan, had distanced himself from Mr. Cohen, saying that this week that he had no role in the decision to hire Mr. Cohen, the company had also said that hiring Mr. Cohen was a mistake. Novartis said it discovered soon after signing the contract that Mr. Cohen could not provide the services he had promised and allowed the contract to expire. Columbus Nova, the investment firm in New York whose biggest client is a company controlled by Mr. Velksberg, the Russian oligarch questioned by Mr. Mueller, paid about $500,000 to essential consultants last year. A lawyer for Columbus Nova had described the money as a consulting fee that had nothing to do with Mr. Velksberg. Earlier this week, AT&T said it had been contacted late last year about Mr. Cohen by Mr. Mueller's team. AT&T said it had cooperated fully with the inquiries. Novartis said this week that it had also spoken with, special, with the special counsel's team about the payments to Mr. Cohen. Novartis said it had cooperated fully and considered its role in the matter closed. For AT&T, the disclosure of its ties to Mr. Cohen comes at a critical moment. The company is defending its merger with Time Warner in federal court against the Justice Department's effort to block the deal. 
It is unclear what services Mr. Cohen provided. Mr. Stevenson insisted in his memo that everything we did was done according to the law and entirely legitimate, and that Mr. Cohen did not do any lobbying on behalf of AT&T. Nonetheless, Mr. Stevenson added, retaining Mr. Cohen was a serious misjudgment. Time Warner was not aware of AT&T's contract with Mr. Cohen, according to a person familiar with the company's thinking. Within Time Warner this week, officials were surprised to learn about the contract with essential consultants. Mr. Cohen did not respond to an interview request. Many large corporations consider such strategic advice to be part of their government affairs program. Complementing their overt lobbying efforts, AT&T's contract with Mr. Cohen, for instance, called for him to advise the company on corporate tax reform and the acquisition, according to documents first obtained by the Washington Post. But Mr. Stevenson said that with Mr. Cohen, our Washington, D.C. team's vetting process clearly failed, and I would take responsibility for that. Mr. Stevenson said that Mr. Quinn, 57, who had led the Washington team, had decided to retire, but according to a person familiar with AT&T's thinking, who was not authorized to speak publicly about the decision, he was pressured to leave because of the revelations of AT&T's contract with Mr. Cohen. Mr. Quinn began working at AT&T in the 1980s and is well-connected in the political circles of both parties, but he and the rest of the company was surprised by the election results and had, a few, and had few connections to Mr. Trump's circles. AT&T's vast lobbying team, which includes more than 100 people and public policy staff members, will now report to the company's general counsel, David McCatty. Mr. Quinn declined to comment. Analysts say they did not expect the revelation about AT&T's ties to Mr. Cohen to affect the government's lawsuit to block the company's merger with Time Warner. AT&T and Time Warner had suggested before the trial that the Justice Department's decision to block a merger of two companies that do not compete was influenced by presidential politics. Mr. Trump has been a vocal and is sustained for coverage of his administration by CNN, which is owned by Time Warner. But Judge Richard J. Leon of United States District Court in Washington has been strict about keeping politics out of the case, which focused on antitrust law, whether the deal would violate competition policy and harm consumers. Judge Leon is expected to deliver an opinion on the case by June 12th. These revelations come at a critical point in the trial, but they are very unlikely to have any meaningful impact on the judge's rulings. A former senior official for the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department said the president of the nonprofit Public Knowledge, Sarah Huckabee, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the White House press secretary, said on Friday that the government suit against AT&T proved that Mr. Trump could not be influenced by special interest. This is actually the definition of draining the swamp, she said. So it seems that there's a lot going on in and out of this lobbying world, and I'm personally not the biggest fan of lobbyists. I feel like lobbyists are trying to influence the elected officials that should be representing us to represent their own interests, and it just doesn't seem right. I know there's laws about what they can and can't do, but we've seen this kind of break apart, especially under the Trump administration. It seems like there's a lot of strings that connect corporations like AT&T to President Trump, to the Mueller investigation, to Michael Cohen, to Russia, to... Seems like there's a lot of webs and strings connecting a lot of this stuff, and it seems like it's a bad time to be at all involved with the lawyer Michael Cohen, and it seems like it's only going to get more interesting as the rest of this year goes on. That's one of the reasons that one of the articles that popped up that I really felt needed to come up in this week's show instead of a uh, profile series. And really keep riding that uh, Trump train wherever it's going to take us. We actually go to some more surprising news, and that is regarding Trump and the drug industry. 
So U.S. President Donald Trump on Friday blasted drug makers and healthcare middlemen for making prescription medicines unaffordable for Americans. But healthcare stocks rose as his administration avoided aggressive direct measures to cut prices. Okay, so it seems like he's walking a very fine line. Trump made the remarks at the White House Rose Guard in a speech to introduce what he called the most sweeping action in history to lower drug prices. The effort came as a growing number of Americans struggle with the cost of their medications and cite health care concerns as a top priority for Washington ahead of a congressional election in November. I personally think the drug... The prescription drugs are way out of hand. There should be no reason EpiPen, like an EpiPen by that brand name, should be $700 for one when it used to be like 100 bucks for two. It's just... The markups in this industry are astronomical. I know a lot of this has to go back to R&D to help make more medicine, but it seems like they're really just lining their pockets at this point. But back to the article. Trump said his administration would take aim at the middlemen in the drug industry who become very, very rich at apparent reference to health insurers and pharmacy benefit managers. He also said the pharmaceutical industry is making an absolute fortune at the expense of American taxpayers. Everyone involved in the broken system, the drug makers, insurance companies, distributors, pharmacy benefit managers, and many others contribute to the problem. Trump campaigned on lowering prescription drug prices ahead of the 2016 election, even accusing drug makers of getting away with murder. Healthcare investors had braced for months for more direct attempts to regulate U.S. prices that would cut into industry profits. But Trump has since abandoned ideas to lower drug costs he supported during the campaign, including allowing the government's Medicare plans for older Americans to negotiate prices directly with drug makers and enabling U.S. consumers to import lower-cost medicine from other countries. On Friday, Trump senior health officials outlined more modest policy proposals to introduce more competition among drug makers and pass on savings to consumers. Critics said the policies pointed to the influence that pharmaceutical industry wields within the administration. I think very expensive champagne will be popping in drug company boardrooms across the country tonight, said Democratic Representative Elijah Cummings. Senator Ron Wyden, also Democrat, said the proposals amount to asking drug companies nicely to lower their prices with zero accountability. Shares of major drug makers, insurers, and PBMs rose after the speech. The S&P 500 Healthcare Index, SPXHC, a broad gauge of large healthcare stocks, closed up 1.5%, its biggest single-day percentage gain in a month. The plan was a lot less aggressive than investors expected, wrote Alex Arfi, analyst at BMO Capital Markets. Trump also placed blame on foreign governments, saying they extort unreasonably low prices from U.S. drug makers, forcing companies to charge more in this country. America would not be cheated any longer, and especially would not be cheated by foreign countries, he added. He said, adding that he has instructed the U.S. trade representation representative to make the issue a top priority within trading partners. As the speech was underway, the Department of Health and Human Services released what it called a blueprint titled American Patients First, which details of its plan. It said near-term action would include giving commercial plans that administer Medicare Part D prescription drug benefits for seniors more power to negotiate prices with drug makers. Federal health plans would also test ways to pay for drug based on their effectiveness. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration would evaluate requiring drug makers to include the list price they set on medicine in their advertising. Drug makers argue that list prices do not reflect actual costs after discounts and rebates. 
Some of the administration's longer-term priorities include restricting use of rebates, creating incentives for drug makers to lower list prices, and investigating tools to address foreign government practices that it said could be harming innovation and driving up U.S. prices. There's not a big proposal here that is going to make a huge difference. There are a bunch of smaller technical changes, said Sam Richardson, associate professor of economics at Boston College. Regarding forcing other countries to pay more for drugs, Richardson said, We don't really have the policy levers to get things to happen. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Lazar, a former pharmaceutical company executive, said many of the actions the government was considering would not require approval by Congress and could take place through executive action within months. said it would take years for to restructure the U.S. drug system. Trump also blasted the pharmaceutical and insurance industries for spending hundreds of millions of dollars on lobbying to protect the status quo. His remarks follow a renewed focus on the influence of the drug maker lobby, which spends the most on any lobbying group in Washington. Earlier this week, Swiss drug maker Novartis admitted that it paid $1.2 million to a consulting firm created by Trump lawyer Michael Cohen, which is what I talked about in my last article that I was talking, that I was discussing. So it seems like everything is loosely connected from one thing to the next, and I really don't get why all of Trump's initiatives have American and first in the title. Eventually going to run out of those. And going from... Keeping with that Trump train, we're going from drugs to North Korea. And that's the connection there. So, Trump calls North Korea pledge to dismantle nuclear test site a smart and gracious gesture. North Korea said it planned to ceremonially close its main nuclear test site this month to ensure transparency about its intent ahead of a historic summit in June with President Trump. The Foreign Affairs Ministry said the site, a mountain near... I'm not going to attempt to pronounce that, a mountain in North Korea, in a remote northeast province, would be complete, completed in phases, beginning with the explosive collapse of tunnels, entries, and other structures at the site would also be removed. In a statement carried in state media, the ministry said Saturday that it would invite journalists from five countries, including the United States, to view the event on May 23rd through 25th, weather permitting. Trump said to meet North Korean leader Kim Jong-un next month in Singapore, praised the announcement on Twitter. Thank you, he wrote, a very smart and gracious gesture. This coming from the man who called him Rocket Man just a few months ago. This announcement comes weeks after Kim met South Korean President Moon Jae-in at a diplomatic outpost within the demilitarized zone that separated the estranged countries since the Korean War. At that meeting, the two sides set a vague goal for complete denuclearization as well as efforts to improve relations that have grown strained in recent years as the North defied the international community by repeatedly testing and launching mid-range and intercontinental ballistic missiles. That and recent underground nuclear detonations at that same place where they were testing have prompted international condemnation and economic sanctions. Kim took over in 2011 after the death of his father, Kim Jong-il, had presided over dozens of ballistic missile tests and four such nuclear tests, the most recent in September, which was the strongest yet. He has since declared the North a nuclear state capable of striking the American mainland with a nuclear-armed missile. At the same time, the dynastic leader who has traveled to China twice in recent weeks has pursued diplomacy in the last few months, perhaps in an effort to improve his nation's economy, which has been crippled over the years by its closed system and at least nine rounds of economic sanctions imposed by the United Nations Security Council. He allowed his nation to participate in the Winter Olympics held in Pyeongchang, South Korea, with athletes from the nations marching together under a neutral unification flag. 
that led to more dialogue and eventually the inter-Korean summit, only the third between their respective leaders. Last month, North Korea has offered its own concept of denuclearization that differs with what American experts might require. Many in Trump administration, for example, say they want complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement known as CVID as part of any deal that might lead to the reduction of sanctions. It's possible that North Korea might offer concessions, the dismantling of its long-range missile, for example, but few international experts expect it to agree, at least initially, to something like CVID. The Kim government sees a nuclear program as protection from the United States, which has 28,500 troops in South Korea. At a ruling party meeting last month, Kim said it would stop testing nuclear devices and long-range missiles. It's unclear whether closing the base is a significant concession, even if there's some evidence that this process has already begun. The site is believed to be badly damaged, perhaps even collapsed from last year's powerful test and several before it. Some experts remain skeptical about the North's intentions. The test site can probably be reactivated by mining the collapsed entries of the tunnels, or another test site could be developed elsewhere. It will be prudent to monitor overhead imagery for indications of opening another site. On hand for the ceremony, the North said would be journalists from Britain, China, Russia, the United States, and South Korea. They're expected to be flown in on charter jets from Beijing to Wonsan, a port city on the nation's east coast. It's an effort, the minister said, to show the world that North Korea is serious, referring to the country by its formal name, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the minister said in a statement. The DPRK will also, in the future, promote close contacts and dialogue with the neighboring countries and international societies so as to safeguard peace and stability on the Korean peninsula and over the globe. The government announced caps a week of surprise and connecting to North Korea, Kim met again with Chinese President Xi Jinping, and it was announced that his historic summit with Trump will take place in Singapore on June 12th. On Wednesday, the North freed three imprisoned U.S. citizens as a goodwill gesture. The three men who had been accused of subversion and anti-state activities traveled home with the U.S. Secretary of State. I am pleased to inform you that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in the air on his way back from North Korea with the three wonderful gentlemen that everyone is looking so forward to meeting, Trump tweeted on Wednesday. Then on Friday, Pompeo said the U.S. would provide the North with economic assistance if it gives up nuclear weapons and perhaps agrees to normalized relations. So it was a very big week in North Korea. And it also is going to cap off on June 12th with a summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un, which I think is going to be very interesting. I still have yet to figure out if this is more for publicity or if this if they have real hard ideas and ways to resolve this long-standing issue that's been building out since the Korean War. So it'll be very interesting to see how this shakes out. I'm hoping it's not just for looks and a play to Trump to get a Nobel Peace Prize, something that's been the bane of his existence since Obama got one like eight years ago. So it'll be very interesting to see what comes of this. I'll definitely be tuning in on June 12th to see... If what happens, because it's definitely something relatively unprecedented in our time. And it seems that the summit details have gotten a little more complicated every day. Uh, this is from a USA Today article. Uh, the White House called uh, Wednesday's release of three American detainees by North Korea a gesture of goodwill ahead of a planned historic summit. President Trump appreciates leader Kim Jong-un's action to release these American citizens and views this as a positive gesture of goodwill. Details trickled out almost daily about their meeting, which could take place in late May or early June. Here's what we know so far. This might be a little late, uh, a little old, because it's already been said as June 12th. Uh, Trump on Wednesday ruled out the meeting 
Kim on the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea and said the final details will be disclosed later this week. Yeah, there's not a ton of information. North Korea warned the United States on Sunday not to misread peace overtures as a sign of weakness, accusing the Trump administration of deliberately provoking Pyongyang with tough talks and a show of military strength. Uh, moving the U.S. military assets in the region and taking about human rights violations also hurt the process. The North Korean Foreign Ministry told the state-run Korean Central News Agency. South Korea's UNHAP News Agency reported that military assets, including eight U.S. F-22 stealth fighter jets, recently sent to participate in the annual joint South Korea-U.S. air training. So it seems like this is still on very thin ice, but hopefully we see some resolution there. And that's really all the Trump news I have for this week. But I want to talk to something that's probably near and dear to a lot of people's hearts, and that is what they watch on the screens day in, day out, or what they catch up on Netflix and what they catch up on and video on demand and all that stuff. So, and that involves the shows. And as May rolls around every year, there are pilot pickups and there are current shows getting canceled, renewed, or they're in a kind of away state. And I'm going to update you on what shows have been canceled and some that have really been depressing for those of you who like a lot of different TV shows like myself. Uh, in this uh, article from Entertainment Weekly, broadcast networks are having their annual bloodletting this week and the body count is high. 16 shows and counting have been permanently axed and more than and more are still to come by the likes of NBC, ABC, Fox, and The CW. The reason for the massacre, pilot season is wrapped, new shows have been selected, and networks are making their annual pitch to advertisers next week. So this weekend is typical for deadline for executives to make decisions on whether to renew or cancel weaker shows that are on the bubble for a pickup. Here are the titles that weren't so lucky with updates to come. From CBS, Scorpion, four seasons, 8.4 million viewers, and a 1.5 rating among adults 18 to 49 was not enough to save it. Superior Donuts, two seasons, 6 million viewers, and a 1.1 rating adults 18 to 49 also... Uh, canceled. Me, Myself, and I, a show that I actually was pretty into. It was a little weird, but uh, didn't actually get a full season that was dropped off the schedule. Not all, not that far into one, maybe five or so episodes in. Uh, one season, 6.1 million views, and a 1.3 rating among 18 to 49. Kevin Can Wait, and I talked about this on an earlier show. I have no idea what the number. It was just a weird thing. I liked it on season one. Liked I like uh, Kevin James. He has a stand-up special on Netflix. He's a pretty funny guy. Liked him on King of Queens. So Kevin Kuwait was a little routine, and then they changed the whole thing by at the end of season one, killing off his wife, bringing on Leah Remini from King of Queens, and trying to recreate that show, and it just didn't work. So after two seasons, Kevin Kuwait is done. Nine JKL, a show I never could understand why the title was the way it was. I know it's just about apartments, but yeah, it got canceled after one season. Uh, and from ABC, a show that's going to break my heart that it's leaving is Designated Survivor, the Kiefer Sutherland show where he's president. He was the Designated Survivor when the Capitol was exploded. Spoiler alert, but if you watch the pilot trailer, it's obvious. Uh, after two seasons, it's going to be canceled. So, as much as I love that show, it's really sad to see it go. And I'm looking forward to watching the finale next week and see how the show is going to effectively end. Quantico, a show I like the premise of, but it's going to be canceled after three seasons. 
Deception, a show that I keep seeing previews for where it seems like a guy who's good at magic helps the police solve crimes. Yeah, that's all I really know about it. Uh, full season order. Alex Inc., the first sitcom about podcasting starring Zach Braff. Sounds like a winning combination, but it was canceled after one short season. Watch the first episode. It was okay. Nothing really special. Hopefully Zach Braff finds something else to do. He's a definitely funny guy. I loved him on Scrubs. Uh, the Crossing. Uh, don't know much about the show. It only had one season. I think it's the show where a bunch of people showed up on a beach, displaced from time. Kind of weird. From NBC, Taken. The, sh- the TV version of the movie was canceled after two seasons. It's currently being shopped to other outlets, so we'll see if it finds life on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon or one of those. Uh, Great News, a show about a new studio that involves Tina Fey, canceled after one season. Brave, uh, a show, not really sure what the show's about, canceled after one season. Rise, basically the the new Glee, it's a show about uh, musical theater that involved, um, what was his name? The main character from How I Met Your Mother. Just can't I'm blank on his name right now. It's canceled after one short season. It was a spring 2018 premiere. From Fox, uh, probably one of the bigger ones involves Brooklyn Nine Nine. It was canceled after five seasons, but just a few hours later, NBC picked it up for a sixth season. So good for them. Uh, Last Man on Earth was canceled. The Mick, uh, girl from Always Sunny. Also got canceled after two seasons. Exorcist. I was talking about this with Liz earlier. Uh, the first season of Exorcist was great. It was a continuation of the story established in the original Exorcist movie. But unfortunately in season two it kind of went on a weird turn and became a very much kind of like a more dramatic uh, version of Supernatural. It's just kind of a villain of the week. Them doing their mission with a weird overarching story arc. So it was kind of like... Supernatural meets Constantine, and it just didn't really work. So it canceled after two seasons. And Lucifer, after three seasons, got canceled. I really enjoyed the show. This season's been great. Uh, Monday, or I guess, I guess you have to listen to it, will be the, I believe, the series finale then. And I, uh, from all the things I've read about it, the creators have said... This cliffhanger was going to be great for fans to get pumped, but it's going to drive fans insane now knowing that it's the last bit of information about the show. There's currently a hashtag Save Lucifer campaign on Twitter that I've been a part of uh, through my personal Twitter account. I'll probably plug it on the show Twitter just because I really want the show to get picked up. It used to film in Vancouver, and it is a DC Comics property through the Vertigo imprint, so maybe the CW would pick it up or maybe get picked up for the DC streaming service. I just want to see more of this show. It's been great. The actor plays Lucifer. Tom Ellis is fantastic. They brought in Tom Welling of Supernatural, or not Supernatural, of Smallville fame to play a great character. So I really want to see more of this. And speaking of CW, the CW shows that got axed, which is actually very little, is Life Sentence, a show from, with uh, Lucy Hale, I believe was her name, and Valor, the military show. But, uh... So it was actually adding uh, a Sunday night block of programming so it could mean more shows and more content they can stretch out so they don't have to cancel as much. 
and I talked about this on JIC because this has been kind of the Andrew Poor takeover week because we had a bunch of JIC. I'm on this show, obviously, on Tuesdays, and Booty's Watching Movie is me doing a kind of a solo show, but with my fiance Liz, who's not one of the co-hosts from Foodies, but made for a great show nonetheless. And yeah, definitely looking forward to getting that whole group back together soon. But speaking of this whole thing with uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, so like I said before, Brooklyn Nine-Nine was canceled by Fox and then picked up by NBC just a short time later. And this is an article about their decision and how it kind of makes sense. So NBC's decision to rescue Brooklyn Nine-Nine just hours after Fox canceled the five-year-old comedy wasn't exactly a no-brainer, but it's also one of the least risky calls Peacock execs will make this week. It's not to suggest NBC isn't taking a chance here. Brooklyn is a decidedly modest ratings performer, even in this era of diminished uh, Nielsen expectations. And as with most series going into their sixth season, it's not particularly cheap to make. But the Andy Samberg-led ensemble has three big things going for it, all of which likely helped make it easier for execs to quickly get it to yes on season six. Let's break down the rationale behind NBC's big save. It's already a part of the Peacock family. Brooklyn airs on Fox, but the show is actually made by Universal Television, the sister studio of NBC. While in-house studios like Universal are now mostly focused on making shows for their own networks, back in 2012 when Brooklyn was first being pitched, Universal decided to shop the idea to all the broadcast networks, and Fox stepped up with the best offer, beating out NBC. Ever since we sold this show to Fox, I've regretted letting it get away, NBC Entertainment Chairman Bob Greenblatt said Friday in his statement. Tactically admitting that he had made a mistake by not locking the show up early in the development process, but NBC's ownership of Brooklyn via Universal did just make it contractually simple for the network to pick up the series. It also made the idea much more financially viable than another network or streaming service saving the show. While Brooklyn so so Nielsen rating mean NBC won't likely make much or any profit selling ad time on the show next season, these new episodes will likely pay for themselves due to the extra money Universal TV will make via its syndication deal with TBS and its streaming agreement with Hulu. Ownership doesn't always guarantee a bubble show's survival. Fox just pulled the plug on Last Man on Earth, even though its sister studio, 20th Century Fox TV, produces it. But more and more broadcast networks are making decisions about which shows live or die based on whether or not they have an ownership stake in the program and are thus able to monetize the program through revenue streams other than advertising. It's worth noting here that the sh- Shows jumping from one broadcast network to another is not a new phenomenon. Back to this night, NBC canceled its paranormal crime procedural drama Medium after five seasons of Becoming. Because ratings, particularly among the younger viewers the network targeted, had grown soft. But the show continued on for two more seasons over at CBS, in no small part due to the fact Medium was produced by the iNetworks in-house studio at the time, CBS TV Studios. And over the years, there have been numerous cases of one Big Four network snapping up rivals' cancellations for reasons not related to ownership. Perhaps most famously, in 1996, CBS picked up the NBC drama Jag after the Peacock killed the show after its freshman season. Not only did Jag run another nine years, but the show gave birth to an even more successful spinoff, NCIS. It's already got a core audience and a passionate one at that. Based on Twitter's instantaneous Thursday freakout, you'd think Brooklyn was one of TV's biggest hits. Alas, according to Nielsen, its audience is far from massive. The show averaged just under 3 million viewers for the season, including folks who watched within a week via DVR. For comparison's sake, the Big Bang Theory pulls in just shy of 19 million viewers every week. 
But even if Brooklyn isn't burning up the Nielsen charts, its fan base is bigger than those Nielsen numbers suggest. For example, Fox estimated last fall's season 5 premiere drew 5.2 million viewers once audiences who streamed the show or watched on VOD were counted. And among adults under 50, the demo at NBC and its advertisers target, Brooklyn's averaging a 1.3 rating this season. That's not a big number, but it's a tad ahead of another comedy AP bio and drama blind spot. NBC just renewed, and in line with a couple of CBS dramas coming back next season, Instinct and MacGyver. Five or ten years ago, most network execs wouldn't think twice about killing shows with these kinds of ratings, if only because the thinking went doing so would free up room to find a bigger hit with a new series. Unfortunately, one of the byproducts of peak TV is that it's very difficult for newcomers to break through and find an audience, particularly comedies. Canceling a so-so rated show to make room for something else often leads to even lower ratings the following season. So while NBC is unlikely to turn Brooklyn into a big hit, having 13 episodes of a show audiences already know means one less time slot where it has to build an audience from scratch. That's also the appeal of resurrecting classic sitcoms such as Will and & Grace and Roseanne. Ratings for both revivals fell sharply since their respective returns, but both continue to do far better numbers than any other comedies on NBC and ABC, respectively. What's more, even if passion audiences don't directly translate into profits for a network like NBC... At a time when Netflix and premium cable are dominating the pop culture attention span, there's something to be said for having shows people talk about and truly love. Yes, it would have been silly for NBC to save Brooklyn just for a few days of good PR, and the tiny halo effect having the show next season will produce. But given its ownership stake in the show and its heavy concentration on younger viewers, having another show audiences care deeply about is a nice fringe benefit. It's not like NBC has an abundance of comedy hits. The final factor which likely drove NBC's decision to order Brooklyn is the network has been hard-pressed to produce big new comedy hits in recent years. Despite making strides to rebuild its sitcom brand, Will & Grace of course counts as a very big win for the Peacock, even considering its post-Olympics ratings decline. And season 2 of The Good Place Notch demo ratings on par with long-running comedies such as Mom in the Middle, while holding on to its season 1 young adult audience. But beyond that, NBC comedy bench remains thin. Superstore is doing fine, but hardly a great hit. Uh, great news got all the chance in the world to succeed, but it's now been canceled after two seasons of tiny ratings, even by 2018 standards. Champions came and went over a few months this spring, and AP Bio is coming back, well, because NBC is like, figured they should at least bring back one new comedy from this season. NBC is making better sitcoms than it did a few years ago, but still the only network with which programs comedies just one night per week. Adding Brooklyn to the roster won't transform NBC into a powerhouse, but it's also not going to prevent the network from finding the big new comedy hit it needs. So it's definitely one of those interesting things involving a lot of moving pieces that I don't completely understand, but finding the new show and finding TV that's great to binge because you can't just force yourself to watch one exclusive network and sometimes there's shows you like that are on competing nights or... And I remember I used for the past couple of years of in August when all the premiere releases are put together and they've set the schedules for that year. I'll lay out my plan of like, okay, Tuesdays is this show, Wednesdays is this show. Oh, these two are back to back. What's going to win out in my viewing attention span? And I really don't watch many, if any, shows as they air. I don't usually pick up TV at 7 o'clock and watch the new Flash or another show like that or watching Destiny's Survivor at 9 o'clock. I usually catch all of those through my Xfinity stream or through Hulu or really wait and catch them on Netflix when that happened there. I, I'm not one of those right when they need it, 
I'm one of those millennials that catch up on all their TV during their commute or after work or when they're not doing anything busy or over their lunch. I'm not one of those set. I don't have a way to record, so on demand's the way I really watch a lot of my shows. So I'm probably not the target audience, but there's definitely a lot of us out there. And for those of us who haven't cut our cords and are still really in it for broadcast TV, it's definitely something to keep in mind. But that's a lot of news to cover this week. I'm losing my voice because this is the second podcast I've recorded today. Actually, third. It's been a busy, busy day recording podcasts. But that aside, uh, you can check me out at The Poor Report on all social media. That's at The Poor Report on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can follow me on my personal Twitter, at A Poor. Uh, I definitely post a lot, and I keep in contact with a lot of other news and film and all that related content out there. I'll definitely be back next week with another profile series unless there's some major news like maybe the volcano in Hawaii explodes causing mass evacuations of the main island. So I will definitely be keeping you guys abreast of what's changing on Foodies as we move forward. We're getting ever so close to episode 40, which is really exciting. So really just keep out and keep doing what you're doing and keep listening to this show and you can always reach out to me through Facebook and I will get back to you very quickly. My phone is practically attached to my hip and I do get notifications when things happen. So definitely if you have any comments, questions, concerns, anything going on with the show, feel free to reach out to me directly through that. But in the meantime, you can check all the other shows on our network out by going to journeyintocomics.com. We have a Patreon that is rolling out some new shows in the not too distant future. There's been a bit of a shakeup on the network side, but once the dust settles, there will be some great new content for you to check out. But that's it for the Poor Report this week. I'm Andrew Poor. This is the Poor Report. Have a great week, and I will talk to you guys soon. And keep up with doing what you're doing, because it's just all great.